to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eger, and this week I'm not joined by a guest, but I'd like to share some thinking with the insight of plenty of commentators on the priestly blessing, which of course we read towards the end of this week's Parsha Nasso. But before I do, I wanted to share with you all that we have reached an exciting milestone on Between the Lines with now over 3,000 downloads and growing as we welcome listeners each week from the US, UK, Israel, Australia and beyond. So do please continue to share with friends and family as we look forward to continuing to grow our exciting community. So to turn to the blessing etched perhaps more deeply on Jewish consciousness than any other, the, pre- the priestly blessing. They are words, of course, which we use on Friday night to bless our children. They're said at weddings to the bride and groom. We say them at the beginning of the morning service. They're, of course, the words of the duchening the priestly blessing. The final line in the sequence is somewhat puzzling as we read. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Archaeology has has provided perhaps an answer to this when in 1979, Gabriel Barkai discovered two tiny silver scrolls with different versions of this Birkat Kohanim at the site of Ketef Hinnom, southwest of the old city in Jerusalem. And they were rolled up in a way that indicated that they had been worn some 2,600 years ago as amulets, as a kind of charm in the way that perhaps today we might wear a Chai or a Magain David. The discovery the oldest surviving fragments from biblical times indicated, therefore, that long before even evidence for the written Torah, the blessing was used as some kind of protection for our ancestors. Also similar to the Deuteronomistic and injunction for Tefillin, for example, that we read in the Shema, uh, put my name on the Israelites. And as the finding shows, this was perhaps um, understood to be really quite literal, written not in the Hebrew alphabet, but in fact um, in an ancient Semitic script. So it's profoundly moving to think that these words which we read were first uttered and written so long ago. Let's now maybe turn to an understanding of these powerful and important um, verses. The commentator, the Kli Yaka, highlights that there are many opinions as to their meaning, and everyone interprets them according to their own lights. The Lord 
spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. Say to them, may the Lord bless and protect you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his face towards you and grant you peace. The notion of people blessing other people has been met with ambivalence within some sections of Judaism, more familiar perhaps within Hasidic circles. I recall my own story that one of my rabbis at Yeshiva said of Rabbi Soloveitchik, who was once approached by his students to bless them, he came to reply, what do you think you are, an apple? Here, though, uniquely, in the case of these priestly blessings, the one who utters acts as an enabler, not as a doer. So the verse says, I will bless them, referring to God himself, no less. So those who utter the words, and in this case, the priests, are merely, therefore, the conduit through which God's blessings fall forth. Priestly blessing reminds us that perhaps God exists when we let him in, and in order to let him in, we need to let go of ourselves. There's a line from Sotah 5a, which says that any person who has arrogance within him, the Holy One, blessed be he, says, he and I cannot dwell together. Let's turn to those individual lines. May the Lord bless you and protect you. Blessing in this context refers, it seems, to material blessing. Rashi sees it, for example, as referring to one's own property. Judaism has maybe known asceticism at various junctures, the Essene community, for example, who practiced celibacy and perhaps turned more away from the world. But principally, Judaism takes its leaf out of the book of Genesis, most, most crucially, where we see God majestically call forth what is called forth into being as described as good. On the sixth day, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, as we read in the opening chapter of Genesis. And so, too, God's blessings are to be found very much in this world, in the Jewish context. And indeed, we're here to enjoy the pleasures of life. The Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who lived in the 19th century, offers an interpretation slightly at variance to this overarching trail of thinking as he picks up on the seeming paradox that the blessings uh, are in fact recited over the whole people and yet we see their formulation in the second person singular. And he uses this to understand that each person be granted blessings appropriate to them, blessings for study for one engaged in Torah study, blessings in trade for one focused on 
business. Deuteronomy strikes a warning and reminds us time and again of the paradox that it is when we have most to thank for that we turn to God least. When you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And I bring that as the correlatory element of protect you in this verse. And to see that as really a guarding against the potential for arrogance following the emergence of blessing. So the protect you is perhaps a call to humility, a reminder that the ultimate source of our blessings is the divine and an, and an urgent call of the impending danger of a blessing turning into a curse. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The second line of the blessing refers, as the Sifre, the halachic midrash on the midbar says, to the light of wisdom and the knowledge of Torah. It is, though, along with the following line, perhaps one of the most enigmatic that we encounter. Do we not think of God as formless? Maimonides' third principle, of course, speaks of God's non-corporeality. Do we not read in Exodus 33.20, you can't see my face, for no person shall see me and live. And yet we have here this hugely powerful line, the Lord make his face shine upon you, seemingly a huge discrepancy between that line we read in Exodus and, and what we find here. And yet here, as we see, we, we're referring to this blessing as a call for the ultimate direct encounter with the divine. Indeed, we're reminded of Moses' own communion with God on Sinai, when he returns to the people, and we read, and when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, Behold, the skin of his face sent forth beams. The blessing then is really to be able, I think, to receive that direct revelation and an emulation of Moses, no less. In the late Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs' book, Seeker of Unity, where he discusses the works of Aaron of Star Osula. He discusses the Messianic Age as the time when God will be revealed even in the finite world without any concealment whatsoever. And here in our verse, the blessing is for a glimpse of that time. 
as to what it might mean, I can't help thinking of that famous line from Einstein who referred to imagination as more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited to all that we know and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all that there is to know and to understand. Just as the first line is therefore tempered with that call to humility that we encounter, so too in the second line, following the blessing for divine encounter, reference is then made to that element of grace. Perhaps more familiar as a tenet in Christian theology, and of course forever memorialized in John Newton's famous lyrics, Amazing Grace, it's though too a central tenet to Jewish thought, and of course one of the key divine attributes. It suggests that combination of gentleness, understanding, and compassion. And indeed, the word appears 31 times in Tanakh, mostly in human-divine interaction, but movingly, it's also the word used with the estranged brothers, Jacob and Esau, as they reconcile, and Jacob requests of Esau to accept his gift. So we encounter that there in Genesis 33.10. If I have found favour in your sight, receive my gift. Reference to gracious, then, is the understanding that just as God should see the best in us, that we too seek understanding and compassion with all. Live the moral life, see the divine within the other. Let's turn to the final line. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In a long analysis, the 15th century Spanish commentator, Rabbi Isaac Arama, explains that shalom does not merely mean the absence of war or strife. It means a sort of completeness or perfection, the harmonious working of a complex system an integrated diversity, a state in which everything is in its proper place and all is at one with the physical and ethical laws governing the universe. Peace in the world, on this understanding, should therefore begin within a peace. It's the thread which strings together all the other blessings, in a way. And just as many of our prayers grace after meals, the Kaddish, the Amida ends with the prayer for peace. So too it is with this blessing that we encounter here. It remains, of course, our deep, and it requires, in those beautiful words from Marianne Williamson, to overcome our, our deepest fear that we are beyond uh, powerful, that in letting our light, we connect excuse me, in letting our light shine, we connect to the divine and unconsciously give permission for others to do the same. That's the peace that we seek within ourselves, for Israel, for the world, and of course it's been the most important 
blessing that's much needed and continues to be needed, certainly in the world today as never before. Most of our prayers we read in the collective, Judaism is most often a lived expression of the thou-we relationship. But here, as we encounter and as referenced earlier, we find in the priestly blessing a supreme example of the I-thou relationship. To understand who we are as a people, our prayers provide us deep psychological insight, and none more so than the priestly blessing that we've explored a little. His words we have carried with us as that finding from archaeology um, has enabled us to see, and we've carried it with us quite literally over the many centuries. There is no seeking after power that we encounter here, no desire expressed to flee the world. It's a prayer for humble living, for enjoying the fruits of what the world has to offer, for protection, the right to live without fear, for realisation of our true potential, and even, as we saw, ultimate union and emulation of Moses, no less. In their setting in the Torah, it is also, of course, the priests who are summoned to bless the people. We're calling, as discussed, that the source of blessing is, of course, the divine, and they help prepare the people for what can be indeed very daunting, as Rabbi Shai held in his wonderful um, commentary reminds us in preparing the people to receive blessing after having been deprived of it for so long. If you like this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content on our mothership, jewishquest.org. We are once again in coming weeks joined by leading and exciting thinkers and teachers. We welcome Rabbi Daniel Silverstein of Applied Jewish Spirituality next week. And we have Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove in a few weeks' time on Korach. We do very much look forward to meeting again next week.